You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 19, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Today's episode is one I wasn't sure I was going to publish. Uh, This is primarily because uh, when I was getting ready to do the final editing in the introductory piece, I actually had not quite finished it, just couldn't quite get it right. Uh, So I usually put these out on Tuesdays, and uh, on Wednesday I thought I could finish it after a family outing. That Wednesday, which was August 15th, 2018, Part of my family, um, myself, uh, my wife, and my two sons were involved in an auto accident where we were rear-ended when we were in some slow traffic. My 14-year-old son, Andy, died that day, evening, and I wasn't sure if I was going to continue on with this podcast. It certainly didn't seem very important, but it was important to Andy uh, that I go viral, <laughs> no matter how many times I tell him this is not the sort of podcast that goes viral. <laughs> he uh, he would always ask me, and so I felt as fitting that I <clears throat> continue on. I have this interview for episode nineteen, and then I have another interview that I had pre-recorded also for episode twenty, and so I'll publish those in the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure what we'll do after that. At some point, I think my wife wants to come on and we'll do a paradox with the two docs in the, off, the, in the family. Originally, I had a plan of that to being episode 25, um, which I actually hadn't told her about because uh, she doesn't listen as regularly as most of you. But anyway, I'll talk a, a little bit more at the end of the episode if you want to hang around and I'll give you a few more details. Uh, but for now, I'd like to talk about this episode, and this is episode 19. And this is with Dr. Gajendra Singh. So I apologize first to Dr. Singh for the delay in getting this episode out. It's obviously much later than I had anticipated. Uh, But it's a timely topic, and it's one that I think is very important, that whether you're in medicine or not, it's very important for you to know more about. And it's the big con. And that deals with the Certificate of Need. And Certificate of Need is a law that exists in many states, in which case you have to have permission from the government to open medical facilities, either surgical centers, hospitals, um, laboratories. And it's obviously anti-competitive. It raises the prices, makes uh, decreases the opportunities for patients to get testing or access to medications and um, to care. And so overall, it's uh, not a very American free market sort of uh, uh, thing to do. And so we're going to talk about Dr. Singh, who has heroically, in many ways, 
taking on the system in the courts. And so we'll meet with him. Uh, he's from North Carolina, and we'll get the backstory during the episode. As I said, afterwards, when the episode's done, when I usually do the outtakes, um, I'll talk a little bit more about Andy. I'd encourage you to go to the Paradox, that's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S dot com slash zero nineteen for the show notes page, which will have links for Dr. Singh and other things we discuss during the show. I'd like to thank Dan Kalkoff. Uh, shout out to him as he became a new patron to the show, even uh, with all that's going on with my family. So special thanks to you and to the other patrons for the show and your support has been tremendous during this time uh, in my family. And I'd like to thank all those who are subscribed and are listening for hanging in there uh, and uh, making it through the delays for the last couple weeks. Uh, please feel free to share the show. Maybe this one's a little somber beginning. I apologize for that. Uh, but it's a very good, informative show. Uh, again, I'll talk about more at the end of the show and uh, then episode 20. And then I don't know what's going to be planned for after that, but I'll sure I'll find some other subjects and things because there's so much in medicine to talk about that need to be addressed. And so I'm sure we'll find more. But for now, enjoy the show with Dr. Gajendra Singh on Certificate of Need. Well, this is Eric Larson. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Gajendra Singh, who's a surgeon, a general surgeon out in North Carolina. And he opened his own imaging center called the Forsyth Imaging Center. And today we're going to talk about the big con. And it's not some uh, con that anyone's running, but it's one that's happening in North Carolina right now and is actually present in most states in the country, uh, including my home state here of Michigan. But Dr. Singh has taken it on, decided to take the uh, system on. And so we're going to find out his story. And first of all, welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Larson. Um, thanks for inviting me. My name is Dr. Gajendra Singh. And as you said, I'm a general inhibitor ability surgeon in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It's about an hour from Raleigh and an hour from Charlotte. So I've been here since 2011. And uh, I do a lot of uh, general inhibitor cancer surgery and have patient they need uh, imaging quite frequently. So I've been hearing for many, many years that uh, how expensive the imaging is they go to um, emergency room and end up with a ten or $20,000 bill for a simple visit. And I have personal family experience like that where I was present myself. And they say they have a small job and uh, make about $2,000 a month or $15 a month, and they end up with these big bills. Um, I had my personal experience last year where they asked me about $1,200 for my own ultrasound. And that day I decided that I was going to open an imaging center okay. to help out the community. Right, and so, and so the to kind of sum up the story, I guess is really one of the large, large expenses in healthcare right now is imaging, and um, right. a lot. One of the large reasons imaging is so expensive is because it's often tied to a hospital system, or healthcare system, and they can sort of charge whatever they want. And these, and and so what you decide to do is to help these people out, and obviously recognizes a huge need for imaging and quality imaging done by. Um, qualified people. And so we're not talking about doing um, ultrasounds by some guy who's just in the, in the mall or something like that. But these are people who are, I'm assuming there's a, like an accredited system right. uh, setting where you have, you know, actual ultrasonographers and you have people reading who are trained. So, so you opened the center because you saw a, a significant need in your community. You saw that it was, people were paying more than they should. And so what happened next after you started the ultrasound? 
Well, first, uh, we, um, I personally went to Raleigh, the state office, uh, where we talked to the folks about strategic need. Before I opened, I looked into the whole ordeal, how it's gonna, it was going to work out for all the imaging studies, one after another. So after a long discussion in person with them, um, they just literally said it's going to be almost impossible to get an MRI. And so we said, okay, we'll start with ultrasound. So we opened our imaging center in August 2017 with ultrasound only. And then after that, we started ECHO. And then in February of 2018, we put down CT scan and MRI. Right now, we're releasing an MRI because we can't purchase an MRI. <laughs> And so, and so uh, t- to be clear, you know, when I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's the big con. So it's con or CON is, is shorthand for certificate of need. And so right. this is, these are laws that are in place that I think they started back in the seventies or so generally by most states, but they are a way of um, regulating the amount of various healthcare services that are present. And each state has its own, um, own services that it decides to regulate. I think North Carolina regulates quite a few, but I know here in the state of Michigan, they regulate the um, the types of scanners you can have. I think I think they actually regulate ultrasounds too, but I'm not certain about that. But also, if you wanted to open your own surgery center, you have to prove there's a need in your community. Basically, there's some sort of detriment, uh, right. shortage, and so that you have to prove to regulators that it's there. And I don't know what it's like in North Carolina, but I can tell you in Michigan, not surprisingly, the people who sit on the board decide of the certificate need are people who are on hospitals. <laughs> Who, who volunteer their time to tell you that you can or can't open a business in their own town. Exactly the same thing over here too. Most people who make this decision or influence to make this decision are part of the American Hospital Association. Um, they're part of the big corporate. So, you know, we can control, we can provide the quality care and all the stuff. But it comes down to the bottom line that all the money they want to make and they want to keep it to themselves. Here we have two big hospitals, about thousand bad hospital. You know they're called as nonprofit, but when you see nonprofit hospitals revenue for one year is about half a billion to billion dollar, you start to think like, you know, are they really working for the community or for themselves? When their CEOs and administrators makes millions of dollars in salary every year, and it has to come from somewhere. When you right. make a you know hundreds of million dollars, it comes out from the poor people's pocket. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, when we look at nonprofits as, and I have planned an episode on this later on, we're going to discuss hospitals. And uh, But I think, you know, if we look at a traditional hospital from 1920, 1930, it was a philanthropic organization. It was put together by nuns or, you know, philanthropists in the community. It was a very different entity than today's today's right. healthcare systems, right? And so if you're running that sort of system back when you're probably making the decisions of what bed, bedpans to buy, right? And now yeah. it's a, you know, it's a corporate strategy and it's very, it's entirely different than, than what it was back then. And we sort of continue to carry on those historical, uh, you know, uh, vestiges of what it used to be. So, so your problem in, in North Carolina is that you're opening an imaging center. You are fairly confident that you can run MRIs and uh, run scans at a discounted rate to what the hospitals run with, I assume, radiologists reading the films. And you're, you're stopped by essentially the hospitals themselves that are sitting on these boards. Is that a pretty accurate description of what's going on? That's right. You know, so right now, uh, we can get MRI only for two days a week, which is uh, 
only the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. We can't have it over the weekend, weekdays. We can't have more than two days. Um, and uh, leasing an MRI is so expensive that uh, and and some of some part of this regulations because the uh, the mobile company has to apply for COM too, and right. it's, it's just so much paperwork and uh, so much money they have to invest. And on top of that, mobile means that you know even if we are using MRI for two days a week and nobody else is using it, they can't leave it here parked in my parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> According to the law, they have to move it every week. And it, it just sounds ridiculous. Like, you know, why do, would you have to spend that much money to move a, like, you know, million-dollar machine from one place to other place just to show it that it's on the wheels? And currently in the situation I am right now, if I lease an MRI every single day for a year, I can actually buy in that amount of money or less than that. Sure. And just keep it forever. So if I can save money, you know, my goal is to pass it on to the community. That was the whole reason I had opened the imaging center, not to just get rich. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, so when you hear how this, the procedure works, anyone would think it's, a, it's ludicrous, right? That you actually have to, that it, because it's mobile, you have to keep moving around. You can't own it. You have to lease it. I mean, it doesn't, it, everyone knows in general, it's better to own things than to lease it perpetually uh, but clearly the like you said the imaging the mobile imaging centers have to keep they have they operate by the same set of laws and so they have to prove a certificate of need but they probably have a larger area they can prove there's a search a need for or something like that or the fact that maybe weekend coverage well actually um, the mobile mri certificate of need is approved on county basis it's not like you know you get a like CON for the for the whole state of North Carolina. You can go from any place to any place. No, these are based on county basis, so they can't even take from one county to other county to provide the services. So if they have to serve <laughs> ten different counties, they have to apply for ten different con to make sure they can move from one county to other county, which I think is very restrictive. I don't think it helps anyone. No, I mean, I think you probably you could imagine a time when people thought this was a good idea back in the seventies when when there was very there were very limited resources and the I, I don't know I have a hard time imagining where it really did make sense but I can see why people might have thought it it helped but what obviously happens you get a regulatory capture where you have the institutions that benefit by having a monopoly or some sort of restriction on this service are then the ones who end up controlling the, the process itself. We had a similar law here in the state of Michigan, which was passed recently in the last, I suppose, 10 years, where if you wanted to open a recreational vehicle uh, dealership, you had to get approval from a regional board, which is composed of people who run re uh, recreational vehicle dealerships. So clearly, they would almost never approve to anyone to open up a new one, which right. is not in any way helpful to uh, to consumers, right? You're going you're gonna to limit right. the amount of choices people have. And this is essentially the exact same same practice, right? It's... It's a, it's a totally rational uh, move by the people who have the MRIs, but it locks so many people out of, out of the ability to start a center and then especially the people to benefit from having extra centers available. Right. All these practices are kind of like, you know, monopolistic, anti-competitive. And I don't think um, in our free market, especially in American culture, where we think the competition is the lifeblood of the American business and entrepreneurship, we should take this out and make it free. Everybody should be able to just, you know, I understand the need for licensing oversight, but, uh, you know, crippling somebody, like you're trying to open a restaurant, 
And people say, no, we already have 10 restaurants in town. We don't need any more restaurants. Yeah, but I don't want to so, go to McDonald's, right? <laughs> but right. Yeah. So so in, in the state of Michigan, we've looked at this, uh, and I'd say when I say we, I mean the Michigan State Medical Society has has been a, uh, opposed to the certificate of need law for many years because of this reason. It restricts physicians' access to open centers and and you know surgery centers or imaging. But they've always used the legislative process to try and fix this. So your solution is not a legislative fix. What are you doing? Well, um, there's a several steps. Every year, somebody tries to, you know, for the last many years, somebody tries to bring it down in legislation, but it's always contested and always, you know, thrown out the window. Right. So that's not possible. Um, the, uh, as you know, you have a lot of knowledge about the current laws. It was enacted by the federal government and then later adopted by the state governments. But the federal government repealed it a long time ago. In North Carolina, actually, state of North Carolina, I believe it was 1973, struck it down completely, the con law, and made it unconstitutional. Uh, but legislation, you know, backed up by the lobbyists, they went around the Supreme Court order. They modified the law a little bit and reenacted two years after the Supreme Court law. Yeah. So what we think, like, you know, if Supreme Court was in favor of the public in 70s, then Today's market is much worse than the 70s market. Financially, we are in, in a worse shape. You know, people right. are more poor. Like you know, they have a like higher unemployment rate. They don't make as much money in comparison to inflation. Uh, so we're hoping, like you know, the court will look as an, in favor of us when we're trying to explain these things. So when you say the court, you're talking about the North Carolina Supreme Court. That's right, North Carolina Supreme Court. Yes. Okay. So your so your solution is to to go to court to litigate this. And yes. and the reason I talk about the litigation not working and you say it's hopeless is because the lobbying, the money that's on, which moves most state legislation is whether people know this or not. I mean, the, the lobbyists in the state capitals are potentially even more powerful than they are in, the, in, in D.C. just because people don't pay quite as much attention if they're a voter. And so you have huge lobbying money, which comes from the hospital administrations, from the mm-hmm. insurance companies and... Um, I mean, some. I guess those are the those are the large ones when it comes to healthcare. I mean, I, and the specialty societies and medical societies generally don't have as much money behind them. And so, when legislation comes up, unless there's some groundswell of public support, which there generally is not for something like this because it's such a specialized piece of legislation, it never goes anywhere, right? And so, so your way your way is obviously to just bypass the entire process and say we're just going to fix this in the courts by making an economic liberty issue out of it. Yeah, because you're, if you're trying to get this through legislation, you're trying to ask the hospital people who are lobbyists and back up, like you said, the legislation and they spend you know tens of million dollars. You're asking them to give up their right and money. And who would do that? Nobody does that. Right. <laughs> so like, you know, the, the other thing to do is like, you know, um, just go fight it and just take it down. Don't even talk to these people. What we are hoping, like, you know, with our, like, you know, I think what I started is kind of stirred quite a bit here locally and, and national level. So we are hoping, like, you know, we can, we can pursue, like, you know, a lot of legislative people who may be in the favor of the community and who have tried to, uh, like, you know, repeal the online legislation can back us up and stand in the, you know, you know, Congress or Assembly or State Senate level, wherever, and say like, hey, like, you know, listen, this is enough is enough and we got to get rid of this thing. Right. And, and time will tell. 
Sure. And, and with, when it comes to litigation, it's not obviously a very quick process. Although, you know, I guess you could argue legislation is oftentimes not quick either. So you're probably not doing this all on your own. And in fact, I know you're not. So who did you find to help you litigate this sort of case? Because this is a pretty, um, it, you know, to try and find a law firm to do this that's not associated with any sort of hospital system in your, it was probably almost impossible. So what did you do to, to try and get around that problem? Uh, Institute for Justice, they, um, they are very knowledgeable, they're very smart, and they have resources. So I've been, we've been working together for several months, like from the beginning of the year or a little before that. And we've been talking and going over all the facts and data and everything. So they have done their homework. They, are, they have worked very hard. And I would say, that, you know, their attorneys are very smart. Um, they have looked like they've gone back as far as like, you know, con law, you know, started and looked at it like, you know, all the loopholes and state and federal level and everything. Mm-hmm. And when, when we saw it, like, you know, they say like, no, we'll back it up and we'll do it. And they are the one, they're doing all the work. Right. And, and so the Institute for Justice is, a, I guess you'd say an ideological sort of think tank litigation <laughs> out of D.C., mm-hmm. Right, uh, and nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Right, nonprofit. I, in full disclosure, I've actually contributed to the Institute for Justice. I've supported that financially f- almost since I started my started practicing here in uh, out of residency. So I'm very familiar with their work, uh, and their strategy generally is to try and shift the laws in a couple states, and either have the state legislature legislature realize that the the writing's on the wall and and trying to adjust their laws, or once they are victorious in a couple states and they say they can go to the other states and say, see what's happened in, you know, North Carolina or Louisiana or whatever. It's you will go to, we'll take you to court, but we obviously are going to lose. Right. And so that's their way of sort of moving this policy and opening up more economic freedom for everybody, right. just physicians. What, how did you find them or did, did you find them or did they find you? No, I reached out to them. Okay. So you just did like a Google search and, or had you heard of them before? No, my my partner is actually out of D.C. He grew up in D.C. area. Ah. So he, he is very well aware of them, you know. So he said, like, you know, we were talking about this thing one day, and he said, why don't you reach out to them? No. You know, I, said, I said, okay. Like, you know, so I had sent an email, and I got a reply back, I think, in a couple of days from one of the attorneys. And um, since then, we started talking, and then, you know, they've been very nice. Um, they're very friendly. They're, and I can tell you that, you know, uh, that they are smart. You know, they're, they're not your average, you know, attorney sitting in a little small court. They are very smart. They know what they're talking about. <laughs> they, 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 they do their homework before they make a phone call. And for those who are attorneys listening, uh, we do think some of you are smart too, so. <laughs> no, I'm not saying the attorneys are <laughs> no, smart, but, but you know what I mean? Like, you yes, know, they're, they're very good at this exact, this type they, of. They, they're very good what they do and yeah. they're very knowledgeable and they have resources and everything. If you go to a small, small town attorney and ask somebody to do this thing, it needs a lot of work. Oh, yeah. And I think and, like, you know, small attorney or a small group is, is very difficult to handle because it's a very complex issue. Right. And, and when, I, uh, talk to, uh, when I talk to other people who have issues with a large um, company or something, most of these companies have a number of the large law firms on retainer in the area. And so it's oftentimes very hard to find a, a law group that's good. Uh, that's not in some way affiliated with the organization. I think that's somewhat intentional. And so that makes it, you know, more difficult for someone to bring suit against if you're just kind of a small, a small fish in a big, you know, in a big pond. And what's the timetable for this? I mean, obviously you're in the discovery phase right now, sort of the planning stage. Is uh, the 
the suit's been filed. Is that correct? Right. So, so the state knows it's coming and you're suing the state of North Carolina. Right. What, what is, uh, what's been the response for, from the community and what's been the response from the state and maybe legislators? Um, state has not responded uh, because Vox has exclusive right for the story. So they reached out to the, all the state officials, which were uh, named as defendant, and uh, they have not responded. Okay. Uh, well, which is not surprising. Yeah. But, <clears throat> but the response from the community is overwhelming. Like you had called me, reached out to me. I get phone call every single day from from multiple people from from all over the states. You know, from you know, I've sort of gotten so many phone calls about these things, and they are actually some of them said like, you know, we've been watching this thing and we've been thinking about it, but you are the one who stepped up and just tried to do something about it rather than just talking about this thing. So, well, somebody's got to do something about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how so, all the changes uh, happen. Right. So as the, as the physicians, as you know, um, as a community, as patients and as people and public, they are very well supportive of what, what we are trying to do. Do you find, um, I mean, obviously I'm not in the state, so they're probably getting support from out of state as well. What, when you say the community supports you, are you talking about the north, the, the entire state? You're getting calls from all over the state, or is it pretty much just like your county or people who have accessed your no, center? No, it's all over the state. Yeah, you know, I just got a call from one of the doctors this afternoon, oh, and great. she's out of Raleigh. You know, she's like several counties away. Um, so she called and says, "Like, you no, know, hey, I just wanted to congratulate you. Do what you're trying to do, and we got your back." That's that's amazing. That's so great. And and, uh, and so, have you had a lot any of the state legislators, the senators, or reps call contact you to try and sort of piggyback it if they think if they sense there's momentum behind this? Uh, not yet. Okay. And usually, like, you know, when somebody tries to contact me like that, I usually, you know, refer them to, to the attorneys. Okay, sure. sure. If anybody calls me for an interview or something, I just want to make sure the media team at uh, IJ is okay and the attorneys are okay. Because sometimes some people pretend to be journalists or reporters, and I don't know everyone who is uh, legit and, you know, reputable and who's not. Right. Well, and this is not your business, right? <laughs> so your business is just to, to to operate and take care of patients and then your other ways to run the center to try and take care of patients as well. So you're obviously not a specialist in dealing with the media. I'm certainly not either. Right. So mm-hmm. um, so the timetable right now, what is what is the IJ? What are they suggesting that the 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 uh, the length of time this is going to take to play out? Um, we don't have any exact timetable right now because we have not even gotten any response from the state, uh, from legislation. So we, it's like, you know, it's just only been a week since we filed the lawsuit. Oh yeah. Um, It's too early to say like, you know, what the timetable is going to be because, you know, in in legal issues, it can take many years. There's no way to know that's going to take six months or six years or 60 years. So as so for the time being at least you're you're able to sort of limp along with your surgery. Well, I mean you're I guess you were successful with your imaging as from an um, ultrasonography standpoint. It was the addition of the the more complicated scanners, the MRIs and CTs. Right, we do everything. We do ultrasound, uh, echo, X-ray, CT scan, MRI. So we are full service except mammogram. The mammogram is for the future, but right now, besides that, we have all the modalities, and we are open seven days a week. And what's interesting, and I we talked about right before we came on too that obviously you're an independent surgeon; you're not part of it because no one could open their own center if they weren't 
if they were employed by a healthcare system, I can't imagine. And then, right. you, nor would they embark upon this, <laughs> this strategy to basically take on their employers. I mean, that would never be allowed. How, uh, how long have you been independent in that area? And do you think this is something that's important for physicians to consider when they're looking at employment options? Um, I've been independent since 2012. Um, I've been on my own. Um, I um, had a partner join me last year, so now we are two. But we, we are not part of any corporation, any healthcare system, uh, so we can make our own decision. Being independent is not easy because the big corporation and hospital system try to run you out of the business. They try to provide roadblocks in every single essence, like, you know, they can to, uh, like, you know, so you cannot survive financially. So healthcare system, um, especially here, I don't know how it is going in Michigan or other state, but it has become like a cutthroat business over here. It's like, you know, big corporation trying to run everybody else out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, their mentality is like, you know, either you're with us or just, you know, without us. So yeah. if you're yeah. going to stay in town, you join us or you leave town. And they try to uh, put all the roadblocks they can possibly. So you're you're not successful in your practice and financially and all the stuff. Um, you try to drive away the patients from your practice. You know, their primary care doctor, like I'm a specialist. So they try not to let their primary care doctor send any referrals to me. They try not to send their patients to my imaging center. They're, they're trying to restrict everything so they can keep this monopolistic practice. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, so they're, they're basically doing everything they can to, to protect their, to protect their market share when it comes to imaging, because it's very lucrative. Right. I, I mean, I guess you, if you're the hospital, the argument you'll hear from the hospitals is that, well, the imaging is, we charge more than we probably would have to but it's because we're taking care of all these people who have no money. All the, you know, all this free care we're providing that this is a way for us to make up our margin. Um, how do you, how would you reply to that sort of line of argument? I actually, I have, you know, it came out in one of the meetings, one of the hospital administrators says like, you know, well, one year we wrote off $80 million in, um, in the, like, you know, the charity care or poor right. people. So that's a lot of money, $80 million. And my answer was like, you know, you are nonprofit. You make about half a billion dollars. And if you put taxes on it, that comes down more than $80 million. You are actually limiting the system by making yourself nonprofit. You charge three or four times than it should have been. And then you don't pay taxes. So by being nonprofit, you say like, you know, we're going to just give you $50 back and we're going to charge $200. So we're <laughs> actually making money on this thing. Yeah. it's uh, So for, for them to say like, you know, they're providing charity care, ah, they're not. Right. Yeah, I guess. I, I am, I, I am non-profit. I'm, I'm for profit. Like, you know, um, right. and uh, I'm not a non-profit entity, uh, but I am the one who's trying to provide the services, which non-profit are supposed to provide to help out the community to bring their costs down. Like one of the patients just told me that she had a breast biopsy done and her bill was $7,000 with a good insurance. Yeah. Which is which is a ridiculous amount of money because we can do the same biopsy in our center if you need for 500 bucks. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think I've talked to a number of other people on previous episodes and, and you are seeing because of the increase in the deductibles that patients are now carrying and the large premiums they pay, 
you were turning what previously were not discernible shoppers uh, of healthcare services into people who are very um, careful about at least looking at prices, which before, you know, no one really paid any attention. They'd have their $50 copay and they just go and do whatever. But now um, with HSAs, certainly partly, and then, uh, but with the large deductibles, now people realize that I'm not going to hit my deductible anyway. So I better make sure I spend $500 versus the $4,000 for an imaging or, or a test of some sort. And so I do you, you've been openly open, I guess, just for a year now, right? So right. how so how has your business been? Have you noticed a big change in 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 people coming to your center? And in the beginning, we our model was cash only. We didn't take an insurance. But since slowly the word got out and then people started knowing we started getting phone calls from all the patients with the, you know, high deductibles and all the insurance companies. So um finally we kind of caved in and I said, okay, we'll take the because our phone was ringing more for getting the insurance than phone was ringing to get an appointment. <laughs> uh, because everybody was kind of like, you know, requesting us like, you know, to just get their insurance company in the network. So we worked with insurance companies and we um, have a uh, uh, contract with almost all insurance companies, except couple, all major insurance carriers, including Medicare and Medicaid. The way we have negotiated the contract is we have kept our prices in the same ballpark as we um, do the cash patient. So if you go to a big hospital, like you know, somebody's paying five hundred dollars, somebody's paying five thousand dollars, somebody's paying four thousand dollars, you don't know what's going on. Right. We have tried to make it fair with everybody because suppose if you go to a grocery store, if you're gonna buy a pack of chips, it doesn't matter if you're wearing a, like you know Gucci shoes or like you know you're a homeless person, everybody's paying two dollars for the same bag of chips. So I think that should be in the healthcare too, that everybody should pay same or almost same amount of money and it should be fair. It shouldn't be unfair. Right. So I have tried to provide that transparency and the same model. Like, you know, if I'm doing a CT scan on one person, one person shouldn't pay $500. The other one shouldn't pay $5,000. It could be $500, $475, $525, which is the same ballpark, but it's, it's not ridiculously different. Like rather, if you have insurance, you don't have insurance. It should be fair with everyone if you have insurance. Because I, I have a insurance and I pay approximately $20,000 a year to cover my family. But we barely use four thousand dollars. Right. Right. So that's very interesting. So you have so you have pretty much negotiated the prices with the you just tell the insurance company how much you charge. Have you found that the insurance companies have encouraged their patients to use your center versus some of the local hospital systems since it's so much less expensive? Or do you, do you find yes. Start, yes. yes, they have? do. They do. We we are a priority imaging center for almost all insurance company in this area. Interesting. Do you have insurance company uh, insurance companies that are affiliated with the healthcare systems there in, in where you are? No, there's only one which is affiliated with the healthcare system, and we have not had any contact with them yet. <laughs> I'm sure you haven't, since they want to drive all the business to their healthcare system. Right. Well, it's very so, interesting. In the, in the beginning, it was um, it was interesting when I talked to the big insurance carrier in the market, and uh, um, I um, I had to sit down with them and actually explain it to them, like you know, how much money you're spending and how much money I can save you. And that's kind of like I was eye opening for them too. They didn't realize, like you know, that because they um, deal with a big hospital, big corporation. It's like you know, billion dollar company, like a billion dollar company. Nobody right. wants to talk to a, like you know, smaller person like me. You know. Yeah. So when I when I when I put numbers in front of them, like, well, listen, you spend this much money, and you can save this much money, they say, oh, you're right. We'll work with you. 
That's very interesting. And so it, that obviously you had to incur a little bit of extra overhead because now you're dealing with coding and, um, and, you know, yeah. billing insurance. And so, but it's, but for you, it's worth the, with the extra volume that you, that you, uh, gather it's worth the extra expense of having a few extra people, right? I believe so far, like, you know, um, it has been challenging because, uh, I, I didn't do it for getting rich or making money. So I, I put my prices rock bottom. So paying all the bills with the, um, with the limited amount of income source coming in, it, it has been challenging, to right. say the least. Well, and, and what I think most people would assume, there's there are tremendous overheads with these sorts of things because you've got the equipment right. is not cheap that we're purchasing, right? I mean, if I don't know how, I mean, how much is an MRI scanner? Like just a standard, like uh, they, they always depends what you want to buy. Like, you know, it's a brand new MRI scanner. It's about two to three million dollar. Yeah, right. So, um, I'm guessing you don't have two three million dollars in your pocket, burning a hole in your pocket, and so you you're taking out loans, and so there's quite a bit of risk uh, involved in that sort of thing. Yes. And, and yes. so, uh, you know, and you've also got to find radiologists. And how did you find the radiologists to help read your films? Well, I talked to several groups throughout the country. So we do teleradiology. Uh, and that's what most of the hospitals do these days. They have teleradiology group, you know. Um, only bigger hospital employees, they don't radiologists. Most of the me- medium or small size hospitals just, you know, um, send it out. Right. So, uh, so I talked to several people and um, several different um, radiology group. And I said, this is what I'm trying to do. Like, who's interested in being part of this thing? And one of the radiology groups said, like, we're interested. We like the way you, you're working and we'll, we're willing to work with you. And okay. uh, so that's how that's how we have been able to do it. So, uh, and then one last question about the imaging. Uh, so, with the when you mentioned doing biopsies and things like that, is that done by you, or uh, do you have an interventional radiologist that comes in, or what, how do you? No, it's just I'm a surgeon. I've been doing this all my life. So, you so you're just doing it under like CT guidance or something like that, whatever. No, like you know, we don't do CT guided, but we can do ultrasound guided. Ultrasound guided. Okay, sure, like a breast lesion or something. Gotcha. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. Is there anything else you'd like to add or um, anything else to the story that we missed? Uh, no, we didn't miss anything in the story, but I have been asking all the people who are reaching out to me to pass a message from my side to the community. Uh, my one goal is to raise awareness in the community. The healthcare field is uh, so restrictive and secretive that people don't know what is going on inside. Uh, the people do not know that they have a right to choose their health care and choose the option. When you go buy TV, you know, you could look at Best Buy, Walmart, Sam's Club, Target, Amazon. If it's for the same TV, you can save 50 bucks. But when it comes down to the health care, people spend five or $10,000, but they don't look at it like, you know, that we have options right. or we can go somewhere else and look for it. Most people don't even know that they can do this thing. They're afraid that their doctor is going to get mad if I ask to go somewhere else. They get the prescription and they just go where they're told to and then they suffer. They pay a lot of money. My um, plea to all the media people out there is to raise awareness in the community that they have a right legally to pick their own place where they want their care to be done, regardless if it is surgery, imaging, or anything else. And they should shop around like they shop around for anything else. You're buying a shirt, you look at the two different stores, which one is selling is cheap. You know, you're doing Christmas shopping, you try to look where is the cheaper the Christmas tree. Why not do for the imaging and surgery as long as they are reputable, 
as long as you can trust them. You know, uh, the most states have very strict licensing requirements. So opening a fake shop in America is very difficult. It's almost impossible. So anyone who is able to open a surgery center or a hospital or imaging center is probably reputable, probably got a license to attach to that thing. Right. Uh, so they should go out and, you know, try to help themselves by educating that we can shop around and look for the better pricing. And ultimately, this will bring the pricing down. Since I have opened my imaging center, the other imaging center in the town dropped their prices already. Interesting. Well, I mean, so not I think, surprising, I guess. That's how the market usually works, right? Right. Well, their, their, their goal and motto is to run me out of the business. So they're trying to bring the prices down to my level, but they can't do that because somebody has to make millions of dollars right. and overhead. <laughs> well, and frankly, if they keep lowering the prices to drive you out of business, the people who win are the consumers, the people who are getting those right. services, right? Yeah. And that's when I, was in, when I was in a press conference uh, last week in Raleigh um, after we filed the lawsuit, this is what I said when they asked me, like, you know, why don't you send our patients to the hospital instead of doing it yourself? I said, I would be happy to do that. I wouldn't have to open even an imaging center if they were doing the right thing. Right. If they started yeah. doing the right thing, then I don't have to run my imaging center. But the problem is they're not doing the right thing. It's not, you know, justified that they're charging so much money uh, it's more money than people can afford or make it. Like you know, a lot of people don't even make two or three thousand dollars a month. Sure. Oh yeah. I mean, these are very expensive tests. We're not we're not talking about just a, a month's supply of uh, generic medication, right? These are expensive right. procedures. Right. So uh, if people want to if people want to support what you're doing, uh, how would they, they best do that besides just spreading the word? Well, the one thing they can do um, they can write a letter to me. And what um, Institute for Justice has said, like, you know, if you can get support, public support and letters from them, they said collect all of them and their their experience, their uh, pricing list, which they have paid, any receipts, any testimonials, letters and support. They collect all of them so we can take all that to the court and show it to the, like, you know, to the judge. Like, you know, listen, what public is saying? We are saying the same thing, that we need to help this community. And I think that would have a lot of weight when we go through the trial and everything. Sure. Well, Dr. Singh, best of luck in your lawsuit. I I suspect it, with the IJ's uh, track record that you'll be successful eventually <laughs> and hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. And uh, best of luck again with your center and that that you can stay, well, that you can stay successful in the sense that you can keep those the prices low for your patients. Great. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. So for those of you who are interested in um, the night of the 15th, I have three children, uh, which I'm not sure I've mentioned this. I've mentioned some other interviews and other podcasts, and then a foster son. My daughter and foster son were not with us at the time of the accident. Um, We were heading to a baseball game, minor league baseball game here in Grand Rapids, something my son Andy loved to do. 
He loved baseball. He loved that stadium. And uh, <clears throat> it was with my wife's work. And so we're going to join the her office. And they were had rented a, a little deck for food to eat. And um, we're running late. And we're on our way. And on the freeway, there's a exit lane that frequently before games slows down as people are trying to exit and get to the into the parking lot or whatever and so it's very common for it to slow down and we were in that lane for a while i think uh, it's always hard for me to piece that together and then we don't have an accident report yet or details from <clears throat> the police uh, at this point uh, but it felt like we were there for a little while and then suddenly it's sort of an explosion uh as, and I immediately knew we'd been struck from behind. Uh, didn't see anything for a second. I think probably the airbags were deployed. And uh, Next thing I could see was us rolling into the ditch. We had also gone through a highway sign up and pushed off to the... And so we don't know much as far as details from the other drivers, except that no one else was seriously um, hurt in the accident. Uh, I was... Um, uh, injured in the sense I got a, a laceration in my forehead, which was close by one of my friends here in town who's a plastic surgeon. He did a nice job. Uh, but my son Andy was uh, died instantly in the collision. He was at the impact point from our van on the right side. And Andy was a great kid. He's 14. He was a kid who sometimes struggled a little bit with self-doubt. And he played soccer. He was not great, but he had some of the best weeks of soccer in his life um, and actually had made the high school soccer team and was selected a few days earlier as a starter, which, of course, he was super excited because he'd never been a starter in, a, in the club teams we played on before. He was excited to start the school. It was a new school here in town. That's the same one his older sister was going to, who was a junior. She was going to drive him to school every day. And she was excited about that. And he was, uh, was an aviation academy. It's a charter school here in town. And uh, he wanted to be a pilot. And he'd gone to the orientation for a couple weeks. And he'd always gone along with people before. He's a kid who loved everybody. He was, But he's always a kid. Um, he's 14, but not a, not a wisp of puberty in that kid. And so he was very, very small and very, wouldn't say immature, but he was a kid and other kids, boys were, you know, they're getting a little bit older, 14, they're starting, their voices have changed, they're getting more muscular and getting that super awkward mustache we all get uh, as, as we hit puberty. And he was so far from that, but he got there. And so he, at the school, he, at the orientation, he really seemed to get along with a lot of the kids there. He said they thought he was funny. I said, but you are funny. But he was real excited for school for the first time ever, I think, in his life. In fact, I think he was probably never happier. Uh, and so on that day, he we were just talking normal stuff in the car. And he was talking about how excited he was as he got excited about everything. He was sort of an emotional roller coaster. He was either really up or really down, and he'd been really up for quite a while. And uh, I was excited to just kind of see a kid who seemed like he sort of kind of pieced things together. 
and it seemed like his life was sort of kind of making sense. The really special thing about this, not that there's anything great about the tragedy like this, it's been very painful, obviously. Families turned upside down, sideways. He said Andy was a phenomenal singer. He got none of this from me because I am about as bad as one could be. Uh, I'm, I can hear, I don't know if I'm tone deaf technically because I can actually hear tones. I just can't produce anything. So I'm, I always joke that I've been banned in three churches from singing because of the stained glass windows. But he uh, got the gift of song from his mom and was actually better than she was. He sang for the Grand Rapids uh, Choir of Men and Boys. He excelled there. He was kind of always a squirmy kid. Uh, but what was interesting is when he was at the choir, and it's something I never really appreciated until he was gone, until looking at the videos and, and kind of thinking back on it. But he could stand perfectly still for an hour and a half for a concert. He could sing and be totally locked in and focused, and he really couldn't do that with anything else, whether it's sports or you know, school or just sitting around the table playing a game, watching a sports on the TV or a movie or anything. I mean, he was, even when he was a baby, he wouldn't sit on your lap without squirming around all over the place. Uh, but it, in music, he could just lock in. Uh, and after he died, I posted a video that he performed a solo. He had a solo part for the choir on um, Way in the Manger. And uh, it was the last solo he had which was the Christmas of 2017. He actually sang it once at the rehearsal, dress rehearsal, and the recording habits from uh, my wife. And Scott Bosher, who is the choir director, turned around, turned to Andy actually afterwards and said that was perfection, and turned around to my wife and asked her, did you, did you get that? And she'd been fumbling around and she only actually got the last 17 seconds, because up to that point, he was in the choir, and he was part of the chorus, right? I mean, he had very brief solos of like six words or so, but this is his first long solo with a couple verses, and I think we knew he was talented, but until we heard him sing, didn't realize how good he was. So anyway, Scott asked my wife, did you get all that, Mom? And she said no, because she was, you know, I'm amazed and then fumbling for a phone trying to grab things as we all are as parents, right? He said, okay, we'll just do it again. So the next time she caught the whole thing. He sang it perfectly again for her. It was uh, very impressive. He sang it just for her. It's a precious gift that he left us. I posted that on Facebook, partly uh, because we don't want people to be sending us money, but we wanted people to support the choir uh, to, for Andy's memory. As of this recording, which is September 5th, uh, I think they've, raised, they've had 190 plus donors to it. Many of them are people who listen to the show, and to that for that reason, I thank you. I never intended for this show to be that sort of outlet. Uh, but it's been a great established relationship with listeners. Uh, 
And so <clears throat> you certainly can still donate to the choir in Andy's memory. Where there's a memorial fund. There's also a scholarship fund to help other kids who can't pay for the choir to still sing. Um, I'll close the show with uh, with Andy. And I just need to figure out how to do that with the auto file. But that's the plan. And I think I'm going to close with Andy for a while. I'm not sure how long. I hope it moves you as much as it does me. Uh, it's uh, been a difficult couple weeks. I suspect the next months and maybe even year or two are going to be hard at various times. Uh, we're still sort of in the part of the grieving process where you expect him just to kind of come around the corner or just bound down the stairs. Uh, and that's the hard part right now. But I appreciate you for listening. Hopefully I've not made you too sad. That was not my intention. <clears throat> my intention is to celebrate Andy's life and his view on his um, piece on Facebook had almost 79,000 views, I think, the last time I checked. I've also posted my YouTube page for the paradox, but uh, you can certainly see it there or share it if you want. But uh, yeah, his his solo went viral, I think, and so he beat me to it, which is great because he deserves it more than I do. Thanks for listening. Episode 20 will be coming out next week, I hope, uh, with Dr. Meg Edison my friend from episode one and he's been a great great friend and strength through this tough time with our family as if you and maybe my other friends and co-workers during this time and so I I want to thank all of them as today I actually went back to work for the first day and went okay but it's going to be a long long drive as I'm long <clears throat> slog back to a new normal as I'm sure people who have gone through this process before could attest to Thank you so much, and enjoy Andy's solo. <laughs>